Kincaid of Breckenridge on News Talk 770. If you missed today's show, you missed a conversation with conservative MP Maxime Bernier, who may or may not be a leadership candidate, but certainly has some ideas about the future of the conservative party. We also got some breaking news during our program today about some uh, layoffs happening at Post Media News. Jesse Brown is a commentator and a media critic with CanadaLandShow.com. We had him on the program as well. Listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge weekday mornings from 930 to 1230 on News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. I'm Roger. Uh, that's Rob. We're going to talk uh, quite a bit of politics this morning, as it turns out. Matthew Fisher is going to join us after 11 o'clock to talk about what this uh, snub that Canada's just received from a meeting of uh, nations that are combating ISIS, uh, Canada not at the table in Paris. The Liberals say, oh, yeah, we knew. But uh, right. there's a lot of people saying, what's going on here? Matthew Fisher seems to have it on good information that... Um, that this snob, they're, they're, they're sending a message to Canada that people are not necessarily pleased with Mr. Trudeau's withdrawal of the CF-18s from this mission. Well, certainly in Washington, there seems to be some frustration. And, and, and look, I mean, at, at least if, if the New Democrats had won the election, we'd be pretty clear on what their position is. I, I think there's a, a lot of uncertainty in what the liberal position is, and, and that's contributing to this. So we'll talk about that with Matthew Fisher. We've got some time for your calls coming up, 403-974-8255. Can I play this again quickly? Let's do this. Yeah. Uh-huh. I didn't understand that, but I, I'm <laughs> sold. I'm sold. <laughs> Maxim Bernier, conservative member of parliament uh, for both. Is that correct? Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. yeah, the song, the best I could decipher it is uh, he's with us. We know him. We can be confident in him. You should vote for him just like we're going to. And he's working hard for us. Right. <laughs> and it worked. It worked, yeah. You got reelected uh, quite comfortably, didn't you? Yeah, I was very happy to um, increase my margin. Um, I had 59% of the votes, so that went very well. I have a big team over there. And they believe in freedom and personal responsibility. So I'm in politics for that, and uh, I will continue to fight for these uh, principles. Okay. What's the secret in Quebec, though? Because, you know, we've seen it go orange wave. We saw Trudeau have tremendous success there right now, but your support in, in, in your writing is unwavering, it seems. It, I think it's going well when you speak to, to people about what you believe. And uh, for us in Quebec, it went well at the last election because, as you know, we were five MPs and now we're 12, mm-hmm. so seven more. So that's the only province where we gained yeah. seats. That was a good news. Uh, all in around Quebec City region. Uh, so we have to do better next time, and I think we will. So we have at least a big base in Quebec right now. Uh, I think the Quebecers, they like what we're saying about the respect the Constitution, no more interference in provincial jurisdictions. That was what our uh, government did. Uh, and also lower taxes, because, uh, as you know, the Quebecers are, are the one in North America that are paying the highest income tax. So when you speak about lower taxes and and give back them their money in their pockets, uh, it's resonate. Mm-hmm. Now, let's ask the question. We just found out today, as a matter of fact, May 27th, 2017, will be the date that the Conservative Party of Canada selects its new leader. Are you going to run for the leadership? 
I'm uh, testing the water. I said publicly that uh, I'm interested. Uh, I'm thinking about it very seriously. Actually, I was in Vancouver yesterday to meet people because if you want to run, you need to have an organization and also you need to be able to raise money. Uh, I have ideas. I know what I believe in. I, I know what can be good for the party and for the country. Uh, a smarter government, a smarter government, uh, more individual freedom, personal responsibility, uh, and less government uh, interference in provincial jurisdiction. So uh, I'm here today to have some meeting with other people, and that will be part of my reflection. Mm-hmm. So, so to live up to that kind of a vision of what the Conservative Party needs to be, and we look at what it's been up until this point, does that mean a significant change? Does that mean a new direction for the conservatives? I think we need to go back to our core values, what we believe as a conservative, what we want to promote uh, as a future government. Uh, we did good things as a government. We signed a lot of free trade agreements. That's good. We lowered taxes. That's good. We didn't interfere in provincial jurisdiction, and we had a constitutional peace in Canada. Now with Trudeau, uh, Trudeau said during the election that he wants to interfere in, in uh, education. Education is a provincial jurisdiction. In, LK, in daycare also, it's a provincial jurisdiction. So I think that's not the way. We must respect the Constitution, not uh, change the Constitution or not opening the Constitution, just respect the Constitution. I think Quebecers, uh, they like that, and uh, people also outside Quebec. So we need, we need to go back to our core values and why we are conservative. And, uh, and you know, uh, I don't like taxes. Uh, I don't like deficit. And I think we must have a responsible government. Maxim, do you think that the message about uh, less federal meddling in uh, provincial affairs was lost on on the public? There was uh, Prime Minister Harper took a lot of flack during the election for never meeting with the premiers. That sort of became this thing that he's he's met with the premiers one time in his entire time in office. And there were some who interpreted that as being, well, why would he give them marching orders? They have their own jurisdiction. Do do you feel that that was the intent and that the message was lost? No, I think that was a good thing to do. A prime minister did the right thing, you know, respect jurisdiction. And when he had to uh, be in touch with uh, an issue coming from a province, uh, we we had... uh, bilateral conversation with premiers across this country. And uh, so that was the way. We don't need to have a big uh, discussion with everybody around the table and uh, you know, like we, uh, when we renewed the health care um, payment to the provinces, we didn't have a big conversation. We are the one, we were the one who were taxing Canadian and we just give that to provinces with 6% increase every yeah. year. So we didn't have to, uh, to have a discussion about that because we are not competent to delivering uh, health care. That's a provincial jurisdiction. So c- Canadians and uh, Premiers told us that they need more money, so because of our power to tax, and we, we did that. I prefer to uh, give tax uh, break to uh, to Canadians and lower taxes to all Canadians and let the province tax for their own needs. 
And if there's a province that is a little bit uh, poor, the poor jurisdiction, they can have more money from the federal government by the equalization formula. Right. So I think the right way is to lower taxes to all Canadians and let the province tax for their jurisdiction. Like that, you will have competition in delivering of health care. And, um, and people will know if something happened in this uh, jurisdiction, they will know who is responsible at the end. When you, when the federal is giving money, so Canadian, maybe is it the fault of the federal government or a provincial government if we don't have a good delivery of healthcare services in, in a province? So just, and that's an example of right. respecting the constitution. Canadians, by the way, will shake their fist at both branches of government given the opportunity. So. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you mentioned because I, I, I recall the case of Insight uh, in B.C. that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And, and the B.C. government had argued that, look, to us, this is an issue of health care. They view that as a, as a, as a federal interference in, into health care. And I, I think at the same time, that also speaks to the issue of uh, drug policy under the conservatives and whether the, the conservative party needs to take a, a different approach when we look at legalization. Is that something that the conservative conservatives should should support instead of being so so strongly opposed to it. Personally, uh, I will uh, have a, a look at it. Uh, and, you know, we have the decriminalization and the legalization. So we'll see what the government, what the Trudeau government will come, but we'll be open to look at it. I think uh, we must have a, a new view on that uh, subject, looking at what other jurisdiction did south of our borders. So there's something to learn, and, and we'll see. Uh, I won't have a position against that right now. How I think we must see what will be the position of the government, and I'm open to look at it uh, as a member of parliament. Does the conservative movement in this country have to uh, adopt, in some cases, and definitely refine its position on certain causes? I think that uh, environmentalism is something where conservatives have typically dropped the ball, at least in selling the message. Uh, do you feel that there are other issues like this where the conservative party has to really come to the table with something substantial if they want to see some success? But that's that's why I hope that during the the leadership, and if I'm going to to the race for the leadership, I hope we'll have a lot of candidates uh, that will be good for the party, that will bring debates and different ideas on different subjects like the environment. And I think we must have a new look at it. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of way to protect the environment taxes like uh, uh, like uh, the federal government is, uh, want to do right now and here the provincial government is doing uh, a regulation that would be more efficient there's a lot of things but at the end that's the economy and you want a province to be able to uh, and an entrepreneur and business people to be able to produce to be able to produce wealth and job in this country and we have to take uh, in account the environment but we'll have to find a new way to deal with that that will respect Canadians about the environment and also being able to develop businesses all across the country uh, that will be respectful to the environment. But, you know, sometimes we uh, are not able to speak to the people with the right message. And I think we'll have, we must find a way to do that in the next uh, couple of months during that campaign. It's interesting in your responses, I'm, I'm detecting a theme already, that the provinces should have far more power 
uh, in certain aspects, uh, environmentalism has just come up at uh, healthcare prior to Alberta yeah. as a province is larger than many countries, at least in area. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you of the mind that Canada is too large a, a country to be governed from Ottawa, <laughs> that it's, the power should be distributed to the centers that can be more effective? But that's going from the position of the, uh, my position on the constitution. So the constitution is well written and local government, they have the power to deal with uh, a lot of uh, uh, subject and, and we must respect that. So it's why we have uh, uh, the federation that we're having right now. So I don't believe in a, in a central government that will be strong in provincial jurisdiction and interfere in provincial jurisdiction. I believe in a strong federal government that will be strong in, il, in his uh, jurisdiction. So just respect the constitution and, and the father of our constitution, that was they want. They want a country that will be decentralized, local government will be important, and like that people can choose which uh, what in which province they must they, they want to live or or if if different provinces have different approach on different subject that's good and, and I think we must not impose everything from Ottawa uh, if you respect the constitution and, and the philosophy of, of the constitution you know that local government they have a lot of importance and the best government is a government that is near people so the local government always uh, uh, always better to deliver services to to Canadians and that's what the the thought of the father of our constitution and I think we must go back to that uh, philosophy I want to ask you about supply management. You talk oh, yeah. about free trade, and I think you know it's certainly fair to say that the Conservative government did a lot in terms of, of knocking down trade barriers. Unfortunately, supply management remains in place. And when you were with the Montreal Economic Institute, and, and even after you left, the, the MEI has done a lot of great work on, on the problems with supply management. It seemed, though, as, as a Conservative MP, you were backed into a position where you had to actually defend supply management. Do, do we need to reexamine that policy? I think yes. And you know what our government did? Uh, we have a, a vote at our last uh, Congress uh, that we have, our last convention, uh, about supply management. And the members of our party decided to keep that. So our policy was in line with the, the wish of our members. Uh, same thing for a flat tax. I wrote a book on a flat tax. I believe in a flat tax. I bring a, a motion, a resolution in, uh, in our last uh, convention. Uh, and I was not successful at that time. So that was not a position of our government. But I think, yes, supply management and and, and, uh, the way we are taxing Canadian is something that must be reviewed. We'll have a convention in uh, next May in Vancouver, and I think that will be time to review all that. What will be the position of our party on supply management? And I think we'll have a very uh, great debate on that, because if you believe in free trade, uh, we don't have uh, free trade because of supply management it is uh, a kind of a socialist system mm-hmm. uh, and so that's against uh, freedom we got to take a short pause can you stick around yes oh, okay. for sure Mr. Yeah. Bernier, thank you very much <laughs> uh, we're just going to take a commercial break here we'll come back with more from Maxime Bernier a conservative member of parliament for both in Quebec and potential leadership candidate for the conservative party we'll be right back it's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770 love is a burning thing And it makes We're back in Cato Breckenridge on News Talk 770. I'm Rob. That's Roger. Maxime Bernier is in studio with us, conservative MP for Bos in Quebec and a potential conservative leadership <laughs> candidate. He's uh, in Calgary and uh, is going to be uh, testing the waters a, a little bit. 
going back to the election, it's an interesting contrast. I think a lot of people look at the conservative campaign and say, you say, you know, there was there was too much focus on on values issues as opposed to economic issues. But then you can look at the success the party had in Quebec and maybe those kinds of issues resonate in Quebec. What, what's your take on how that campaign was run and, and the focus of that campaign? But, you know, in Quebec, uh, Quebecers decide the strategy of the campaign. We were the one who decided the strategy for the campaign in Quebec. And uh, I think that wasn't the same thing uh, in other provinces. So uh, that was coming from Ottawa and with our people on the ground. Uh, maybe we must look at it. Yes, we were successful in Quebec because uh, Quebecers were managing the campaign. And I think you must have a, a kind of a more decentralized campaign next, next time uh, to be able to uh, have a, a campaign who will uh, be very responsive of the, the needs and the preoccupations of uh, Canadians in the, every provinces. But you must have a big team. And I think our big team at the last campaign was the economy. Uh, and at the end, uh, Canadians want, uh, wanted a change, and I think they voted uh, against the perception of the personality of our Prime Minister. And like here in Alberta, I'm coming from Quebec, I'm not an Albertan. Actually, a journalist in, in Toronto uh, called me the Albertan from Quebec because of my <laughs> view like you on the economy and, and believing in a smaller government. And for me, that's a compliment. But I'm not an Albertan, and I think people at the provincial level, they voted for a change also. They didn't vote for all the policies of the NDP, uh, I think so. Uh, so. And it's the same thing at the federal level. So people didn't vote against all our policies. Uh, they voted for a change. And now we have, we still have a strong base with 99 MPs in Ottawa, 32% of the vote. So we can rebuild the party or rebrand the party uh, in the near future. Was it a mistake, though, to, to focus on the niqab issue as much as the party did? Uh, that was not helping us in big centers, I think. And, uh, you know, I'm pro-immigrant. We are pro-immigrant. Mm -hmm. And the the message must be that, yes, uh, we are open. This country has, built, build, has been built by immigrants, and we must be opened. Uh, but at the same time, the concern was the security uh, during the election and, and the way we deal with that. Uh, maybe uh, it's questionable. Yeah. The, the issue of pipelines is obviously front and center in this oh, yeah. province. Um, and we find there are certain jurisdictions in Canada that simply aren't welcoming to infrastructure projects that would get Alberta energy to the rest of the world, to Tidewater, through Tidewater rather, yeah. for the benefit of the country. Yeah. Could you sell Quebecers on Alberta's pipelines? <laughs> I'm doing that every time. I have a question in French in, 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 a, in a media. And uh, the provincial government, they're not for it but they're not against right now. So they're <laughs> testing the water with Quebecers. So our role, if we believe in a pipeline and we think that it would be a solution for Alberta, but also for all Canadians, because as we know, as Quebecers, we receive a lot of money from equalization. And I'm not so proud to be a Quebecers and to receive money from you guys in Alberta and BC uh, to pay for our social program in Quebec. So our provincial government must be uh, more effective and like that, 
when I'm speaking about on the economy in Quebec, in French, I'm pushing uh, and I'm explaining that it would be good for Quebecers if we have that pipeline and, and that pipeline must be built as soon as possible because it will help uh, Albertan, but at the end it will help all Canadians. So uh, we must, and, and as a critic for the industry uh, at the federal level, uh, I'm speaking about it and I hope that my provincial government will go ahead with that project. But should, is this a place, though, where the, the federal government should, in fact, step in and say, these are infrastructure projects of national interest, just like the railway was when our fathers of Confederation, one in particular, who took a bribe to get it built. <laughs> All right. But look at these infrastructure projects and say, these are definitely in the national interest. They must be done. And it is why what we did when we were in government, we changed the, all the rules on the environment to uh, approve a project like that because we had rule at the provincial level and also the same one in duplication at the federal level. So we, we, we did a, a review of all that for being sure that the process would be approved quickly. So we did that. But I agree with you. The, uh, the federal government can have a leadership on that. Same thing as a free trade. We, we signed free trade agreement with other countries, but we don't have a real free trade agreement in our country. Uh, I like the agreement between uh, BC, Alberta. Uh, I think that's the best uh, free trade agreement that we have here in, um, in Canada, and we must have a real free trade all across the country. So that's a subject that the federal government can, 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 can uh, be a leader on that. Well, and when it comes to those kinds of projects, I mean, uh, clearly there's there's a need for pipelines. It's in the national interest. But when it comes to infrastructure, it seems as though that's a, a moving target. And we're certainly getting signs that uh, this new government's prepared to to splash a lot of money on so-called stimulus. <clears throat> what did we learn from from 2009? And is it a mistake to go down this path again? But actually, you know, more deficit and more debt won't be the solution for the economic situation in Canada. I think uh, more money uh, that the federal government wants to spend, money that we don't have, borrowed money, won't act as a stimulus. It will be a sedative for the economy. Uh, and and uh, I, I hope that the... The government would understand that, but I'm not so sure. Uh, they want to have a big deficit, and they think that they will stimulate the economy. But when the government is spending money, that's money that uh, entrepreneurs and business sector and Canadians don't have. So, And we know who's create wealth and job in this country. That's the entrepreneur. So we must not have a deficit. We must balance the budget and lower taxes. Actually, as you know, uh, the interest that we are paying on the debt, actually, it's about the, the same amount than the budget for the national defense. So imagine what we can do if we didn't have to pay the interest on that debt. So we must lower uh, taxes and also balance the budget. Uh, that's a position of our party, and we'll be a strong, uh, uh, we are a strong believer of that. that. That's some pretty standard libertarian economic think as well, to say that we should balance budgets, we should... Uh, live within our means is the, the yeah. cliche that gets tossed around, and it often leads uh, to, to proposals of smaller government. What yeah. could you cut out of Ottawa to make the government smaller? 
You know, like uh, healthcare, uh, I said it's a provincial jurisdiction. I don't know how many civil servants we have in Ottawa in, in that department. Uh, and I think we must let the province do that and having only an overview. Uh, we must look at it. And I think this campaign for the leadership will be an occasion for every candidate to have a platform that will be detailed in that. I'm speaking about principle right now. And I think you must have consultation with Canadians. But, you know, we, we did that at the federal level when we decided to go back to a balanced budget and, and we had to take decision that was not so popular uh, as I was uh, a minister in charge of tourism and at that time uh, I cut the budget of the tourism department in Ottawa by 20% and I was proud of that and I'm still proud of that because we had to do it and every minister they did it in their uh, jurisdiction in their portfolio and we were successful to balance the budget so we must have the same uh, <clears throat> the same operation in different uh, departments. So, uh, you know, the federal government it's a big it's a big boat, and, and you if you are decided to find a saving, you will find saving. We just got about thirty seconds left. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Kevin O'Leary? <laughs> you know, I, like I said, I like competition, I like debates, and if he wants to be a uh, part of that uh, leadership, uh, it will be his decision. Uh, and he's a great entrepreneur. He did very well. Uh, he built uh, his own business and, and, and other business, and he created job in this country. Uh, but he said that uh, it's not important for him to be bilingual. So we'll see if Canadians <laughs> believe in that. You could debate him in French, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a debate in French. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been great uh, talking to you, and hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to do again in the coming months. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Absolutely. All right, there you go. Conservative MP Maxime Bernier. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. <laughs> a meteorologist, perhaps we ain't. Um, welcome back. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge Show. I am Roger. That right there is my buddy Rob. We're going to have uh, Alan Cross. You know Alan Cross. We like to talk to him about music. We're going to have him on after 1230 today. We're going to talk about, um, uh, well, the, I guess I was just going to say Glenn Fry, but certainly the passing of some very notable musicians. Glenn oh, Fry Lemmy. the Eagles and Lemmy, yeah, David, David Bowie, Bowie, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so we'll get to that. I wonder if we'll have time. I wanted to ask him because, you know, Guns N' Roses are reuniting at Coachella. I do know that, yeah. Now, Ice Cube was, was hinting that NWA was also going to now maybe reunite at Coachella alongside uh, Guns N' Roses. Well, there's a issue. Yeah, there's a big issue. Yeah. <laughs> With NWA reuniting. And there's fully, a, what is it, a quarter or a fifth of them are dead? Uh, well, one, one of them certainly is. Um, they were just inducted into the uh, Rock, and Hall Fall, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, you know, okay. Or they're going to be. We're, we're, we're waiting to connect with Jesse Brown and uh, and Jane Litvindenko from uh, Canada Land here. Uh, but before we do, um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, NWA, does anybody else have a problem with this? Well, they should call it the Music Hall of Fame. Thank you. But, or have a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and then a separate Music Hall of Fame. I wouldn't have an issue with that. We've got like the Beastie Boys in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or Run DMC. It's like Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, really? Is that what we're doing? Yeah, and the other thing, too, NWA, uh, that movie, Straight Outta Compton, not nominated for Academy Award. Well, they got nominated for some kind of screenplay award, right. I think. but Not uh, Best Picture, no Best Actor, nothing like that. Or Director. That. Yeah, right. should have been. 
And so now you got Jada Pinkett Smith and you got uh, Spike Lee and probably some others because there's still some time uh, that are going to uh, boycott the uh, the Oscars. And we should have a conversation about this. We're going to track somebody down to, to, to chat about this uh, with us because you, you got a, an organization that's like, what, 93% white, 76% male, and they're not, <laughs> for the second year in a row, no black actors nominated. And people are saying, guys, it might be a little bit inherently biased. Maybe we should look into that. Yeah. Well, let's get to our next guest on our next, uh, next subject, because we're hearing that across Canada, Post Media is laying off 90 people. And these are 90 people who work in newsrooms. They are merging newsrooms right here in Calgary and in other centers as well. In Calgary, the Herald and the Sun will have one shared newsroom, we are led to understand. Uh, but they are going to continue to operate them as separate newspapers. But a lot of journalists uh, losing their job today and a lot of uncertainty for the newspaper industry in Canada. Now, Canada Land, CanadaLandShow.com, they've been following this story. Uh, we got with us on the line. We're just trying to track down uh, Jesse Brown, who's the uh, host of Canada Land uh, Show. But uh, Jane Litvinenko is an editor with Canada Land, has been covering this story today. Uh, Jane, appreciate you making some time for us here. No problem at all. All right. Well, what have you been able to piece together in terms of what's happening here today? So it looks like there are 90, about 90 jobs that have been lost across the country. And uh, this is in light of uh, a very unfortunate third quarter uh, report that Post Media has posted um, last week, I believe, um, showing that their advertising sales are down and uh, so are their profits. Wow, okay. Uh, so w- what's... I mean, I, I don't want to ask a dumb question here, but what's the objective of the restructuring then? Do they have some sort of a plan that they're uh, putting forward that says we're going to co- compact our newsrooms and, and streamline processes this way or that way? Uh, absolutely. So um, in a memo, uh, Paul Godfrey, who's the CEO of Post Media, wrote that they're looking to cut about $80 million um, or find $80 million in savings by the end of fiscal 2017 so it does look like their plan for for all of these chains is to just be more cost effective just be more cost effective has what's on the table here do they just go straight to the 90 layoffs does it look like or uh were there cost cutting measures and salary reductions as well uh, there have been no salary reductions that I've seen uh, so far, and they have merged uh, newsrooms across the country in uh, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, and Ottawa. So the Sun News newspapers will be uh, housed in the same place as the original Post Media papers. Uh, we were told that only two journalists will be, will be working at the Ottawa Sun um, with the Ottawa Citizen team. Okay. Now, do you have any insight as to what may be happening in terms of uh, facilities? And in, in, in particular, I believe in Edmonton, the, the Journal and the Sun are in, in uh, a shared facility in, in downtown Edmonton. Here in Calgary, we have the situation where both papers are in separate buildings. I, I think the Calgary Herald building, I, I believe um, the lease is up on that, or they're looking for a new home. Are, are they going to go under one roof? Do we know? Um, I don't have any information about Calgary specifically, but that is what they're looking to be doing in Ottawa, so I wouldn't be surprised if they did that across the country. Uh, No information about layoffs in Calgary either or the situation with the two papers here? Uh, So there will be layoffs uh, in Calgary and emerging in Calgary as well. That's one of the four cities affected most. Okay. What about any titles? Do they plan to kill any titles? 
I do know that both uh, both papers would be serving under the same uh, editor in chief. Okay. Um, I'm not quite sure as to specifics um, beyond that. Information is still coming in. Yeah, we see the name Lauren Motley in in the memo. Lauren Motley, I believe, is the editor in chief of the Calgary Herald right now. But he's uh, he's named as the editor for for the Edmonton newsroom. Yes, that's right. Um, and the uh, Calgary Sun and Herald will share uh, Jose Rodriguez. Okay, um, that's good stuff, Jane. Thanks so much for uh, for giving us an update uh, thus far. I imagine the story is still still developing. We're still you're probably still getting very, information. Very fresh. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, we're going to move uh, this conversation uh, from Jane uh, now over to Jesse Brown, who is the host of the uh, Canada Land Show podcast. Jesse, welcome back to the program. It's good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, what's your take on this? First of all, you're uh, you're a commentator. Let us know what you think. I mean, it's awful. It's it's a terrible day for uh, 90 uh, journalists, and, and it's a terrible day for Canadian news consumers. If you think about the number of stories, the hundreds of stories uh, that each of those journalists, maybe under 200 a year, and then times 90 journalists, that, that, that's that much less news coverage in Canada. So this is it's a major thing when it comes to uh, the, just the level of scrutiny that our society has uh, from from its journalists. Uh, by the same token, none of this is really surprising. This is entirely consistent with post-media strategy uh, as far as every indication is that ever since this vulture fund, Golden Tree, bought in and bailed them out and they gobbled up the sun chain with the government's approval, uh, that's how this works. They have to make good on these insane interest payments and to do so, they're just chopping off first you know, fingers and forget about chopping the fat. They're, you know, it was remarked on Twitter today that they're amputating limbs and now they're going in for a lobotomy. Um, you know, and I'm sorry, you know, that the Sun papers have a, bring a lot of value to Canadian cities, but when you have a Sun newspaper that is basically just using the exact same content from the exact same newsroom as uh, the post media newsroom in so many cities, what is the point except just to keep that ad revenue coming in and to keep sort of the semblance of, of distinct brand? It's pointless. Yeah, I, I guess the distinction there will be uh, the the editorial. There'll be some different editorial voices, I, I, I presume, still. But otherwise, uh, it's going to be the same news stories, right? Well, I mean, to to keep an entire separate newspaper published uh, on on newsprint and distributed throughout a city in order to run two or three different columnists' differing opinions. I mean, we, we, we do it. There's no shortage of opinion out there if you want to have a different opinion. I think that having different newspapers that served totally different audiences was a wonderful thing. But if you can't maintain that, um, my feeling is that this is a rather cynical ploy to simply maintain whatever cash flow the Sun Papers presents to the chain. And again, this is all about making those payments, making those payments at crazy rates, as and the only way that you can do that because revenue is going down, down, down. The only way you can make those payments is to cut more and more and more. Just, just shed more and more until you're shedding the very thing that makes you, you know, the, the, the reason for your existence, the news coverage itself. You know, Jesse, I said uh, in the preamble that there's uh, some blame to be shared by all parties here. I mean, we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, pictures of Paul Godfrey in his uh, with his uh, fantastic watch on, and it's kind of a symbol of something. But at the same time, there have been some pretty lavish packages that uh, that have been handed out to some of the employees here. And then I think about uh, that uh, memorandum from Gord Fisher out at uh, the Vancouver Sun of the Vancouver Province, at, at, or the uh, the province newspaper, rather, uh, that went out last year, and, and there was one two years before. I mean, is the problem chain-wide, or can you sort of put your finger on what the main issue is? Is it one person? Is it one division? Or is it really the whole beast? 
I mean, you can look at a lot of things, and, and, and I think it's relevant for people who are losing their jobs to look at management and say, what's with these bonuses? What's with this lack of spending? I think it's relevant for contractors and freelancers to look at the unions and say, how these situations persist where people were getting paid twice as much as me with total job security when I was working twice as hard with no job security. We can look at every type of efficiency and every opportunity to run a, a leaner and meaner operation. Ultimately, all of that it runs secondary. If there is no plan, no cogent, reasonable, plausible plan to withstand what is happening to newspapers everywhere because of the internet. If there's no plan that makes any goddamn sense about, you know, they had this four-platform digital plan. It never made any sense. Uh, the numbers simply didn't add up. And there still is no plan. There, you know, that, I think that's the most galling thing. It, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit uh, tacky that God forgets these... Uh, bonuses and presents himself the way that he does. I would be more concerned if I was a post-media employee at just, well, what is some plausible path to sustainability? Who is thinking about that? Who is presenting something like that that, that anyone can actually believe? Because whatever else you want to say about Godfrey, he's an old man and he doesn't seem to understand the internet. Well, it's, you know, it's an important point because maybe there's a sense out there that this is all inevitable, that the newspaper business is what it is and, uh, that these are just the realities and that there was nothing that could have been done differently to have prevented this. But, but you don't get the sense that that's true. It's too soon to tell. I mean, it may take 20 more years and then we look back and every single newspaper as we knew them is gone. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think that there will be some traditional legacy newspapers that make the transition, that figure out a way to, uh, you know, and we're seeing trends and there's lessons that can be learned. There's some success stories. Stop printing the newspapers during the week, print a weekend edition, move everything else online, take, take online very seriously, look for revenue, you know, what is actually making money online as opposed to just experimenting. I don't, you know, there, there is a lot of debate. It's a, there's a, a widespread conversation happening in how to, how to salvage the news business. What, where I find fault is that post media hasn't been a part of that conversation. What's your experience, Jesse? And, and, you know, don't open the book too much on, for us here, but I know that when you launched, uh, your website, you, you put a Patreon account on there, and I see that you've got some 2,600 patrons who pay you for your content. Um, is, is there a lesson that you're learning that, that maybe post media needs to, to learn as well? Well, you know, there's nothing that's that revolutionary about what I'm doing. It's been done uh, before, uh, and, it, and it seems to work for some people on a very small scale. And it's a, it's a lot easier to build something like this from the ground up than to take something that is people entirely. But I've just provided content and coverage, news reports, building an audience, giving it away for free. And then at a certain point, I turned to my audience and I said, I got to eat. Yeah. So how do you feel about giving me five bucks a month? And uh, immediately I hit my targets and it grew and grew. And now there's a staff, uh, four of us full time and three part timers. So it's a lot of fun to be a part of a expanding uh, newsroom when I've only worked in shrinking ones my whole career. Right. Um, I don't know that that's a lesson that a big legacy company, I think there are things you can, you can take from that. One of which is people are willing to pay for coverage that can, that, that they connect with. Uh, so the idea that people won't pay for news, I think is erroneous. Is that Patreon tip jar, you know, just to give people a visual on it, is that your only revenue or do you sell ads or anything like that? Now we sell ads as well. The okay. Patreon crowdfunding is still our main source of revenue, but we, we, uh, have 
all of our ad, uh, inventory for the next four months. I think we sold out. Okay. And is the, is the secret sauce in this, Jesse, then that, that you, you're not a newspaper with a sports section and horoscopes and classified ads and it's just that you're lean, mean, you do one thing? I think that that's something that works these days. The, the idea that there's a one-stop shop, all of your news and information is just totally not consistent with how people consume information. We all get dozens of different sources shared through social. So that puts a special kind of relationship on, I am doing something that has, you know, podcasting and newsletters. They have a bit of more of a personal, you know, what you guys do, your, your, your listeners know you and they like spending time with you. And, and, you know, that is something that isn't offered through the sea of links that get thrown at people on Facebook and Twitter. But yeah, I think that we're going to see a lot of really micro niche, you know, journalists carving out very specific beats, building, you know, I don't have, uh, you know, I, I, I uh, very, Lucky to have the success, but it's, it's based on 2,600 people. It's not a huge 2,600 paying people and then something like 30,000 people who download the show. It's not a terribly large audience, but you don't need a terribly large audience to sustain. You just have to have a very lightweight operation. Well, that's the thing with the post-media newspapers. Um, they, they've still got readers. They, they've still got a large base of people who are interested in, in their content. And so that's where there seems to be a disconnect. It's not like people aren't reading these newspapers. News readership is up overall. It is a wonderful time for the newsreader. It's a terrible time for journalists, but it's a wonderful time for newsreaders. People are incredibly curious. We're reading things from all over the place. So I think that, you know, if I were them, the, the, the question is, you know, when you start to actually um, succeed uh, or, you know, your survival plan has to do with cutting all of the journalism, that's a terrible way to go. Uh, what you need to look at is who still values our product and what can we do to get more money out of each of those people who still uh, consumes our product? How can we present more value to them? You know, I, I mean, I, I really, I, it's amazing to me that they haven't simply made the appeal at some point. They never, you know, the reader, uh, people who love the Sun newspapers, for example, were never even given the, the, the chance to save those papers and those jobs. Yeah, right. if, if they said, look, we're, we're going to get rid of all of the people who report the news here unless uh, everybody signs up for, you know, this additional service or, you know, to, 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 to cut the reader out of the deal in that way, you know. Yeah. Jesse, thanks very much for the insight today. Much appreciated. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks all right, take care. That's uh, Jesse Brown. He is uh, from CanadaLand.com. Canadaland Show, rather, uh, .com. Did I get it right eventually? Yeah, yeah. CanadaLandShow.com. Right. So, yeah, I mean, Jesse writes and talks a lot about the media and, uh, you know, has positioned himself as, as a media critic. And it's interesting. I mean, how much of this lies on, on post media and the bosses of post media, Paul Godfrey in particular, who took home seven figures last year? What is he doing to try to turn this around? What is his plan? Why haven't they been able to capitalize on the readership that's there? And now what? Where, where does it, where do things go from here? Well, so, they go to a commercial break immediately. We'll be right back after this. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. There's an interesting text, by the way, or a tweet, rather. A tweet uh, today from Glenn McGregor, who's a national affairs reporter at the Ottawa Citizen. And again, I don't know what this, this means for him in particular today. Uh, but he tweeted this, and I want people to think about it. He says, if you think this has anything to do with post-media papers being too left or too right or too whatever you know zip about the media industry. That's spot on. And you're going to see that. You're going to see uh, you know, you're going to see people jumping on and say the left-wing media is, is doomed. And then someone uh, texts us here says, post-media wasn't so consumed by pushing conservative agenda, they might have had more subscribers. That's not the issue here. No. No, it's, it's, just, it's just plainly not. But people want to speculate or they want to think they know it all. They don't look under the hood. 
Here's a text from someone in, uh, somebody says, Post Media pays multimedia reporters 30 grand a year and work them 50 to 70 hours a week. That's less than minimum wage for a career, but we do the job because we love the job. The layoffs aren't surprising. We were told about them at merger time last year to be prepared in the next six months to a year for layoffs. So they knew it was coming. They got the invitation to come to the town hall or memo reading or whatever it was. It has never been a better time to be a journalist. The only problem is you've got to rely so often on the people who own the press in order to get your job. But the press is no longer uh, an important uh, thing. Owning a press it doesn't give you a license to print anymore. Now you can print uh, anything from Twitter all the way up to your own blog and all over the place. So I, I wish our friends, our journalist friends over at the Post Media Papers who are getting bad news today, uh, all the best. But, you know, journalism's not dead. It just so happens that this business is. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, someone took a, took a shot at Vice. You know, Vice News, not for everyone, but Vice Vice is doing well in this in this media environment. Um, listen, well, we've got to take a break here. We're going to come back. Alan Cross is going to be with us, a uh, music expert. We're going to talk about uh, you know, some of the big names that uh, we've lost this month in, in the world of music and uh, what it means. It's King Kate and Breckenridge on News Talk 77. Right, welcome back, King Kate and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. More sad news this week uh, out of the music world, uh, where the Glenn Fry, one of the founders of the Eagles, passed away. Was he 67, I believe? I'll check. I think I have a device here that can prove that for us. It's, uh, of course, David Bowie, just on, on the heels of releasing an album, which ended up becoming his first number one album. Uh, dead at 69, and, and what a tremendous career he had. You're right, 67. 67. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, Lemmy from, from Motorhead, and you know what an impact he had on, on so much of the music world. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's been a tough month. Yeah. Um, it's kind of it's it's weird. Because we tried to get Alan Cross on the program to talk about uh, the unfortunate passing of David Bowie and, dare I say, the untimely passing as well. Uh, but he couldn't do it. He was in jury selection and not for some kind of music prize, the jury I'm sure he'd like to be on, but for like an actual jury that it sucks to be on. Um, and then I didn't think to myself, I thought, oh, the opportunity's passed. And little did I think, well, I'm sure another rock and roll singer will pass away, giving us the opportunity to have this conversation with Alan Cross. And Alan, welcome back. Here we are. If I had been selected for that jury, I'd still be sitting because it was a two- or three-week bank robbery trial. Oh, wow. That would have been exciting. That would have been a good post-interview, too, if you could talk about it in this country. <laughs> so, Alan, um, are, I mean, are they just going to keep falling? I, I feel like when Mickey Mantle died, I remember looking at my dad and going, wow, all of his baseball heroes are now starting to die. Uh, is that the case with rock and roll right now, or are the, are the heroes of rock passing away? Uh, yeah, it's that's the way it is. Um these are people who have been making music for 50, 60 years in some cases. They are reaching what a friend of mine once called actuarial age, and they're starting to die from the things that you acquire while you're living, things like cancer and other horrible diseases. They're not dying of assassination or suicide or drug overdose. They're just getting to that age where the body begins to betray you. And we're going to have to get used to this. And it's a difficult thing because we were acquainted with these artists when we were young and they were young. We listened to their music to help us remember what it was like to be young. And now they're dying. So what they're doing is actually reminding us that we're old and that's not good. Yeah. You know, it's, I think David Bowie's impact was, was more obvious, right? He was the bigger of the names and, and, you know, his career was, was, was pretty obvious and, and the impact he had. 
uh, Glenn Fry and, and maybe to a certain extent as well, Lemmy, I, I don't know if people fully appreciated the impact that these two had. Well, Lemmy was part of this whole thrash metal thing. If there was no Motorhead, there wouldn't be any Metallica. If there's no Metallica, uh, then there's no Megadeth. If there's no Megadeth, then there's no Anthrax. No Anthrax, there's no Slayer. So everything that follows in that hard, heavy, thrashy metal thing, I mean, that really goes back to what Motorhead and what Lemmy were doing in the late 70s and early 1980s. With Glenn Fry, it's interesting because the uh, the Eagles were the band that personified that hippie, dippy, West Coast, 70s country rock lifestyle better than anyone else. They weren't the first ones because, you know, there was Jackson Brown, there was Linda Ronstadt, there was J.D. Souther, there was, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and sometimes Young were there. Uh, and, and, and a good part of the Eagles, the, the, the nut of the Eagles, Don Henley, who was from Texas, and Glenn Fry, who was from Michigan, weren't even from California. But they managed to co-opt that sound, refine that sound, and they became synonymous with living in California. Yeah, right. And obviously the iconic song. Um, it, it's just, it seems odd to me, though, as we, as we, you know, look at these particular artists who have died at what you called actuarial age. It feels different than Kurt Cobain or uh, Jimi Hendrix, I imagine, or Elvis Presley, yeah. these people who, who left mid-career. Yeah, it's simply because they are of that age when uh, they're just old. Now, I'm mean, yeah. 67 or 69, or 70 even, are, is not old by by today's standards. However, when you do become that age, you can expect your body to start saying, uh, just a second, we have some problems here, especially if you're a rock star and you've been living a hard life. I mean, the fact that Lenny lived to 70 is a minor miracle. The fact that Bowie lived to 69, the fact that Bowie managed to get out of the 70s is, is a miracle. Because at one point, the guy weighed less than 90 pounds, and all he was doing is drinking milk, eating raw peppers, and taking copious quantities of cocaine. That was his diet for a couple of years. And the fact that he didn't die is just amazing. Uh, Glenn Fry, you know, he came out of the 70s where, you know, you did whatever 70s rock stars do in, in California. Just go and, you know, ask uh, Stevie Nicks what, what it was like being in Fleetwood Mac at the time. If they weren't clean livers, you know what I mean? Yeah, they weren't clean livers with clean livers. And, and who expected Joe Walsh to outlast Glenn Fry? Well, you know, that, that's the other thing, too. I always associate uh, Joe Walsh with with uh, Dennis Hopper. I don't know why, but I, I look at the two of them and I go, yeah, you could be the same guy. Uh, but, but now, you know, we're going to have to get used to this because there's a whole bunch of them that are getting up there. I mean, what do we do? You know, there's Mick Jagger. There's Bob Dylan. There's Paul McCartney. I mean, we want these guys around for as long as we possibly can have them. But pretty soon, the only person standing is going to be Keith Richards. <laughs> yeah, it seems that way. Yeah. It was interesting because you wrote a piece uh, at your website, at journalofmusicalthings.com, about how 2015 was, was the first year that old records outsold new ones. Maybe that says something about the current state of the music industry, but it does also speak for the fondness that, that we have for these, you know, the, these musical giants, these legends. It, it could be. Um, one of the things that it might say is that young people, are disenchanted with a lot of the music that's coming out today and uh, have absolutely no qualms about going back and listening to the music their older brothers or older sisters or moms and dads or even grandfathers used to listen to. 
We've found out that the silos that used to keep people in certain music genres and certain music scenes, they've all broken down. And with the ubiquitous availability of music for streaming music services and whatever else, anybody can get any song at any time on their device wherever they happen to be. And, you know, if, if uh, the, the kids are discovering Black Sabbath, I mean, you go to a Black Sabbath uh, tour and, and look in the audience and you see, yeah, there's guys with, you know, ponytails that begin on the crown of their head. And then there are 18-year-old kids or 14-year-old kids in, in, in leather and studs. So there, there's this, these divides have broken down. The, the, you know, when I was growing up, there was this huge gap between the music I listened to and what my parents considered to be tolerable. Now it's not uncommon for, for fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and whatever permutation you want to create. Is it, they all listen to this, a lot of the same stuff. But can we, like, is there an explanation for it though, Alan? I, I wonder if when, when David Bowie dies, uh, here, hang on, I got something here. Like the Whitney effect, right? So Whitney Houston dies and all of a sudden she's number one on the App Store or uh, in iTunes rather. And I mean, does that, does that affect, uh, the, is there a shock wave that ripples out and now all of a sudden bands that sound a lot alike David Bowie or now a band that sound like the Eagles are, are going to experience maybe months of popularity? Without sounding glib, death can be a very good career move. Um, <laughs> people will, you know, like with Bowie, <laughs> they actually had to go back and, and recalibrate the fan scan numbers this past week. Um, they, they found another 8,000 records that weren't counted, so Bowie ended up with his first number one album in Canada, uh, selling 24,000 records, um, beating out Adele. So, you, and that was just in about four days. So you have to wonder, you know, everybody's, everybody's talking about Bowie. Everybody's, you know, discussing what he meant. And if you're, you know, a 17-year-old or a 23-year-old and Bowie has absolutely no relevance to you because he went into hiding long before you were born, um, it's, you, you may be, because you have access to a streaming music service or iTunes or whatever, you may be moved to say, okay, what's this all about? What's, who was this guy? Why is everybody talking about him? And then you come across some of his music and you go, oh, I get it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that Bowie's last album ended up being a, a number one album. Uh, I don't know how much, you know, the last 20 years or so really do factor into the entire Bowie legacy. But, I mean, it speaks to how much he, he still mattered. Well, the, and that was the interesting thing. And Bowie disappeared in about... 2005, and he disappeared from public view, although he was right there in, in plain view in New York City. He would go for groceries every week. He would he had a sandwich shop on Olive Street in New York that he, uh, it was a really good uh, watercress sandwich that he liked. Um, he was out with his daughter, uh, Lexi, and him and Amon would go to events, and they go out to dinner, but they gave him such a wide berth. And uh, he was just busy being David Jones. Oh. He was busy being <laughs> David Jones. And he could walk down the street because we didn't expect to see David Jones. We expected to see Ziggy Stardust or Aladdin Sane or Dustin right. White Duke. And uh, he was happily retired, except when he decided that he wanted to make a couple of albums. When he made the, that uh, second last album in 2013, uh, the next day, it, it shocked everybody. He managed to make a record in the era of the Internet, and nobody knew it. <laughs> it was a t complete secret. Same thing with this last record, although it wasn't quite as much of a secret. It was telegraphed uh, several months early, 
uh, probably because at that point, November is when we started hearing about the record. At that point, his cancer had been declared terminal, and uh, I guess he was just preparing his exit. You know, that's one heck of a stage-managed way to get out of his life. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, uh, I love, by the way, the, the the touches you put in the interview, Alan. It's always a little taste of the ongoing history of new music with you. The watercress sandwich that, uh, that David Bowie got to write down in the menu item. Hey, can you hang on the line? We want to take a commercial break. I think Rob's got a question about this Guns N' Roses reunion show. Okay, we can talk about that. Cool. Alan Cross is going to uh, stand by with us uh, for one more segment. You're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. All right, we're back talking music with Alan Cross, a journal of musicalthings.com is uh, Alan's website. Uh, Alan, you got an interesting story, by the way, about Guns N' Roses. Uh, it's pretty big news that Guns N' Roses are getting back together. We thought Coachella was going to be the site of that reunion, but um, an interesting story. that They're, they're actually going to do a, a show before Coachella. Yeah, I was in Las Vegas last summer for a Rush show, and uh, I was talking to somebody locally, and he said, uh, you, you know this, this Guns N' Roses thing is going to happen, right? And I'm, well, I'm not surprised. I mean, it's, there's just going to be too much money on the table, and it's going to have to go through. And it, they'll probably play Coachella, and, you know, it'll be a big deal. And he goes, yeah, they'll play Coachella, but it's not going to be um, the first show that they do. Says, what are you talking about? He says, well, we're building a new arena here in Las Vegas. And part of the negotiations uh, is to open the arena, to have the very first show at the arena, Guns N' Roses, the reunited Guns N' Roses. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's uh, an interesting theory, but we'll wait and see what happens. So the Coachella announcement happens, and uh, everybody assumes that uh, on the, I think it's the 15th and the 16th of April, uh, Guns N' Roses will hit the stage for the very first time in Coachella. But according to a new press release that came out today, April 8th and 9th at the new T-Mobile Arena in uh, in Las Vegas. It'll be the first concert to be staged at this new place. So you can just—I'm trying to imagine exactly how much money is involved in this because <laughs> okay. it's just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's insane, you know. Uh, and, and the deal making that's going on to for this tour—I mean, it is going to be the thing that that that, that makes or breaks the the budgets for for so many promoters and venues this summer. Um, you know, they, the tickets for the show in Las Vegas start at eighty bucks, but then they've got these uber high-end special <laughs> VIP packages that come with everything from pre-show parties and reserved seats to autographed uh, uh, merchandise and, and a whole lot more. And they don't even bother pricing that stuff for the press release because, okay, it's Vegas. If you have to ask, you can't afford it. <laughs> Pretty well. I don't know why they're going to have uh, have the concert at a brand-new arena. That seems like too nice of a building to destroy on the first night. <laughs> I was well, at Vancouver. I was at the Vancouver riot. It was terrible. Well, that's, that's okay. So, so actually comes on three hours late, and they're going to break the yeah. building before he gets a chance to get broken in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, man, hey, you know, it's. Uh, I was reading as well. Now that uh, you know, Guns N' Roses is going to play at Coachella. I saw Ice Cube was teasing that NWA might reunite at Coachella. What do you know about that? Uh, oh, I listened. <laughs> Everything's for sale. I think Ice Cube has proven <laughs> with some of his children's <laughs> movies <laughs> that he will do just about anything uh, to make a buck. And you know what? I do not blame him. It is very tough to be a musician. You want to get the money while you possibly can. And if somebody is going to allow you to perform your art in a way that doesn't compromise who you are or what you do, listen, grab with both hands, buddy. Yeah, I wonder how MC Ren feels about that. He could probably use a paycheck. What's Ren doing? 
good question. It's a it's a trick question, isn't it? Isn't one of the, isn't Ren a, 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 a film star? Uh, or was one of the other guys, I think. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he was doing some some adult films at some point. Anyway, Alan, we'll leave it there. We're at uh, journalofmusicalthings.com. Thanks for coming on with us here. Anytime. All right, take care. Oh, there you go, music journalist uh, Alan Cross. Yeah, he's. Uh, it was good to, to be able to connect with him. He's got a lot going on too. Not only has he got the the website that he keeps, he's a uh, part of the Geeks and Beats podcast as well with Michael Hainsworth from BNN and this lady that I live with, who's occasionally on there as uh, their tech girl. It's pretty cool. Is that a fact? That's a fact. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um. I yeah. Hmm. I want to dwell on the NWA thing for a little bit here, but I think we're kind of, you know, some, something that started about Glenn Fry and uh, David Bowie. If it switches over to, to the remaining members of NWA, we might be a little <laughs> bit off topic, I fear. <laughs> uh, but, some of the texts. I'd pay money to go see that show. Yeah, so would I. I um, yeah, it's, it's weird because, you know, NWA with Ice Cube, that was just one album, right? And that was like 1998. Yeah. And then he left, and he did his own thing, and NWA continued for a bit, and they did their own thing, and then they all split up. I think all these people are defined by a lot of other things. I don't know that – it's weird. I don't know that a reunion is as impactful as, say, you know, a, a Guns N' Roses, if you were a Guns N' Roses fan. I still remember in high school when the uh, – what was the second Guns N' Roses album? Uh, after uh... – Use Your Illusion, was that the one? No, it would have been... uh, What was the double album? That was Use Your Illusion. Maybe that's the one I'm talking about. And it was still in the day. So this is like 91, 92. I'll check this out, but I want to say lies. And I remember remember there was a friend of mine in high school, and he was into that that music, and people were lining up. I remember at Bonnie Doon Mall, Edmonton, there was an HMV in, in there. People were lined up outside that store on the day that that new Guns N' Roses album was coming out. You would be correct, sir. It was Use Your Illusion. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So uh, they're, they're yeah. a big band, right? And and obviously, like if Axl Rose died, it's not the same as, as David Bowie dying. And maybe in 10 or 20 years, it'll be closer to that. But I mean, they, they're sort of in that, that spot where obviously they're a huge band and had a huge impact. Um, but they're not quite in, you know, the same... That same category, I guess, yeah. Mm-hmm. I retract my you were correct statement, by the way. I was correct. It was lies. <laughs> well, <laughs> that final final <laughs> answer. Lock it in, Regis Philbin, you are correct, million dollars. All right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I kind of dropped in the, in the interview there. I was at, uh, when they were supposed to get back together, and they announced that show in, in uh, Vancouver. I had tickets, and I was standing outside uh, what was then called GM Place, waiting for uh, the, them to open the doors. They could not have handled this more poorly. For starters, a rumor starts to circulate in the crowd that Axl Rose is not hes not at the venue. In fact, he's not in the country. And that he doesn't plan on playing a show tonight. Now, everybody who had lined up to go see this concert, and everybody who bought a ticket, knew full well that an Axl Rose, Guns N' Roses concert doesn't start. It's like Doors at 8 show maybe, maybe by the end of the weekend. Like, this guy's got a habit of going on stage at 1, 2, maybe even 3 in the morning at times. But uh, what they basically did is uh, bef- they unlocked one of the doors, opened it, and a guy, biggest guy they could find in the yellow security shirt said, show's canceled, and then pulled that door shut and locked it. And then that's when all hell broke loose. And if you want to go read about people getting their teeth knocked out by uh, police batons, garbage cans being lit on fire, tons of windows at the venue being smashed, there is no shortage of stuff. And that, that scar, it took like 
years to rinse that stain off of Vancouver. Might still be there in some respects. Wow. Well, it's going to do it for us uh, pretty much here on the program today. Now, tomorrow's not Thursday yet. Mm. So we got to go till 1 o'clock tomorrow. It's, yeah. Tomorrow's Wednesday. That's right. Am I right? Okay. So far, so good. Keep it going. <laughs> so that means uh, Thursday, Dave Taylor is going to be here. And he's going to be here. We've actually seen him. Somehow he gets into the building here. And we've seen him around, and he's putting a lot of work. He's got this show lined up for uh, Thursday afternoon, 1230 to 3, a look at elder care uh, in Calgary and in Alberta. And, you know, and it's going to be a live show. It's going to be some live guests and an opportunity for people to phone in as well. So looking forward to that on Thursday afternoon. Yeah. And Friday show is just going to be a, a ring-a-ding-dong dandy. Oh, tremendous. Absolutely. Can't wait. That's it. We're, we're done for the day.